Hello, Detroit in the world. Welcome to another episode of Authentically Detroit, broadcasting live from the Zoom platform in partnership with the Audio Wave Network Studios inside the Stoudemire Wellness Hub, sponsored by the Ford Foundation. And we're also a content partner to BridgeDetroit.com. Happy Black History Month, everybody. I am Orlando Bailey. And I'm Donna Givens-Davidson. Thank you for listening in and supporting our efforts to build a platform of authentic voices for real people on the east side of Detroit. We want you to like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast on all platforms. We drop a new episode every week, so be sure to turn on those notifications. Joining us for the first time today is Michigan Lieutenant Governor Garland Gilchrist. Gilchrist is the chair of the Michigan Coronavirus Task Force on Racial Disparities, who is releasing a report today with 14 recommendations to curb disparities health outcomes on racialized communities as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic that has really laid bare the systemic inequities that has existed in our state. Gilchrist is a Detroiter, a husband and father, and he is the first Black lieutenant governor in the state's history. Lieutenant Governor Gilchrist, welcome to Authentically Detroit. Orlando, Donna, it's good to see y'all and be with y'all. It's good to be with some fellow Eastsiders. So yeah, I'm happy uh, to be you, you came out the gate strong, you know. Uh-huh. Hey, you know, you, know, you said fellow Eastsiders. You're an Eastsider now? You didn't oh, know no, that? I'm born on the east side. Lafayette and McDougal. Okay. Uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> born on the east side. How are you doing, Garland? I'm blessed. I'm blessed. We're, you know, my family's hanging in there. Um, you know, my um our, our household was visited by Omicron in the early part of the year. Mm. Uh, my baby girl got at a daycare and that led to uh, the rest of us testing positive. But thankfully, you know, we are a, a, a walking five person testimony to the to the power of vaccination and boosting <laughs> because, you know, I really didn't have any symptoms. My son didn't have any symptoms. My, my wife and my other daughter had very, very minor ones. And so, um, that we were, we were fortunate in that regard because a lot of people have not been as fortunate. Absolutely. And so very thankful for that. Walking um, testament of uh, the vaccination and boosting <laughs> uh, uh, working, but you're also walking living history, sir, as the first mm-hmm. black lieutenant governor in the state. So this is the last day of Black History Month. So uh, we just wanna ask you, do you ever mm-hmm. think about how monumental that is? I mean, what the way I think about it is, I think part of my responsibility, in addition to what I need to do day to day as far as my constitutional responsibilities, um, as far as my partnership with the governor, in addition to that, I one want to make this position, this role that I'm in, to be better understood by more people and by our community because, you know, who knew who the lieutenant governor was <laughs> or like what the lieutenant governor did right so i want to i want to make it more accessible and understandable and, and for people to recognize its importance and then two i want people to be able to see themselves as ascending to whatever leadership roles they choose to strive for and to know that that is possible and sometimes having examples of people in, in the realm that you want to be in or in other realms can help uh give you the confidence to feel like you want to pursue that dream for yourself and ultimately we want to get to a place where we're not having first anymore that that, yeah. that we that we removed the novelty from representation and that instead uh, it becomes um just what we should not only expect but rely on for good outcomes and so that i think that that's ultimately what i what i want to see true so that's the context in which i think about it so um you know representation does matter though 
unfortunately, you know, I, I would say we're all human race. <laughs> and, and I really don't think of black as a race, but as an ethnicity, um, we are all human and we all, you know, come from the same um, eat, well, Lucy, we're all descendants of Lucy to some extent. I was just at the Charles Wright Museum. But um, as Lieutenant Governor, right out the gate, you were um, called on um, to help lead an initiative to address this emerging problem that was disproportionately impacting Black people. And that was COVID-19. I'm sure when you were running for Lieutenant Governor, you did not understand you were going to have this kind of crisis on your hand. Um, so can you talk about the task force, the role of the task force, and the specific charge um, that you helped lead? Yeah, it, I mean, you're absolutely right that, that you know, the governor and I, this was not what we saw coming when, when pursuing this office in 2018. Even coming out of 2019, you know, we, we did not think that this was going to be something that we would have to, that would be so centered to the experience of the people of Michigan. But mm. nevertheless, you know, um, it was in front of us and it's our responsibility to act and act responsibly. And so what we saw as COVID-19 was showing up in other states, um, the state of Michigan took immediate action in a way that did, that had really strong implications for how this impacted people of color in Michigan. So mm -hmm. we outfitted our public health infrastructure to be able to track COVID-19 test results um, and include data on race and ethnicity. That was a decision that had to be made. And that was a decision that was made by, you know, Dr. Jonay Caldoun at the time was our chief medical executive in our state, a black woman, um, Governor Whitmer and myself, saying that we wanted to understand, recognizing that there have been disparities when it's come to, to health outcomes, you know, for the last 500 years. And so under, wanted, wanting to know and, and be able to track how this may or may not show up in this pandemic, uh, we had to outfit the infrastructure to be able to measure that. We did so. And so when we had our first COVID cases on March the 10th of 2020, we began tracking and we saw very quickly that this virus was disproportionately uh, hurting and killing black folks more than it was killing other people. Like, look, we represent 14% of the Michigan population. And in the first two plus months of the pandemic, we represented 40% of the people who died of COVID-19. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And that was felt really deeply in Detroit. And look, I, and I'm saying this to you, like as a black Detroiter, as a man who has said goodbye to 27 people in my life from COVID-19, like this is not a theoretical exercise for me. I saw this virus killing people, unfortunately. And so seeing that we acted quickly. So one month after we had our first COVID cases, Governor Whitmer via executive action established the Michigan Coronavirus Task Force on Racial Disparities. And she asked me to chair that effort. And we were given two charges. The first was to <coughs> identify the sources and to flatten the racial disparity when it came to the mortality rate of COVID-19, that disparity I just described. And mm -hmm. the second charge was to use what we learned in addressing that disparity to deal with the broader inequities and disparities when it comes to you know, social determinants of health that lead to poor health outcomes and access to opportunity. So what, did, what could we learn from this immediate emergency experience to be able to create more equitable outcomes broadly? Um, and so that's what we got to work on right there in April of 2020. We were the first state, the only state to do a statewide task force that was focused specifically on this, that was fully funded. We have 26 of the brightest minds in Michigan, working with literally every state department and agency. We met every Friday. We still meet every other Friday um, to do interventions in the community. And, and I'm proud of the work we did. You know, we, we did everything from, you know, distributing 6 million free masks because masks worked 
at Slowing the Spread of COVID-19. We worked with um, neighborhood organizations and trusted community organizations to create neighborhood-based testing and vaccination infrastructure at more than 30 locations in, in you know, primarily communities of color across the state of Michigan. Um, we worked to create mobile testing and vaccination infrastructure. We actually invented that in Michigan in partnership with Wayne State and uh, Access Community Health to be able to literally specially outfit four vans to drive public health resources to a community, to a park, to a jail, to a neighborhood center um, to, to get those resources to the community. Um, we also worked in partnership to fund directly grant money to 30 neighborhood-based organizations across the state of Michigan um, that were doing rapid response work to be able to deal with some of those social determinants of health that made people in our communities more susceptible to contracting COVID-19 or having a bad outcome from it. Um, so really proud of that work. And what it led to was us flattening that disparity. But by the end of 2020, you know, uh, we, we went from representing 40% of the deaths to, to less than 3% of the deaths. And that you know, disparity flattening has thankfully held, even with the surge with Delta, even with the surge with Omicron, um, those numbers have held. So we're, we know that it's fragile, but we're proud of the progress. Talk a little bit about, so you, there were essentially three working groups uh, within a task force and uh, each of uh, the working groups have come out with a set of recommendations. There are about 14 recommendations in this uh, year's report. Um, any recommendations that you want to amplify? And then my second add-on to that is um, how much of the power to implement said recommendations reside in the governor's office? Uh, is there a legislative role that has to uh, be taken into account to realize a lot of these recommendations? Let me answer the second question first. Um, I think we were able to use as, as much executive action as we could to address this directly. And that was really important because, you know, bluntly the dynamics between the executive and legislative branches in Michigan during COVID-19 and with, in terms of COVID-19 response have been problematic. And, and that the, the, the legislature being unwilling to, to treat the virus in the way that we, in the way that we were, in a way that was aligned with us, um, I think it delayed some impact. We do need the legislature to be at the table to fully realize health equity in Michigan period, um, when it comes to COVID-19 or the spirit health outcomes that, 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 are, that are either the result or a function of poverty that persists in communities across the state of Michigan, we need the legislature to be at the table with us to work on it. So let me just say that up top. Now, to your question, so the, the, the task force has, has gone through a number of, iter of iterations in terms of how we've uh, structured it to respond to the, to the crisis. Um, I want to lift up a few things that I think are more uh, meant to be more systemic in nature that'll have some, I think, some really long-term impact. And so one of the work groups we, we sat, seated was called the, the Centering Equity Work Group. And what that mm -hmm. was focused on was, you know, really, how do we think about approaching dealing with health disparities? How do we, how do we enable, um, whether it's government or government partners, to be able to make better informed and just better choices about how we approach dealing with disparities. And so one of the things that the Centering Equity Work Group um, um, recommended, for example, was that you know, in our state health department, that we actually use a, a model, a, a process called the, an equity impact assessment to think to impact how we make choices in state government. Mm -hmm. And so we, we piloted that during the pandemic in terms of our pandemic, um, sort of the, our pandemic response, there were so many different facets of the pandemic response when it came to state government. And so the, the equity impact assessment 
really was a, a, a process, a lens to make sure that, that every decision we were making in that department um, took into account disparate impact and could be adjusted accordingly to try to make sure we were, we were directly responsive to those who were most deeply impacted. And so we wanna scale that up. That, that type of lens can be applied to every choice that is being made. And so we wanna, we we're looking to have some infrastructure to be able to do that, scale it up across the health department, across state government, and really frankly, be an example that other organizations can emulate as far as, again, how they're thinking about addressing these problems. Because the biggest takeaway, the meta takeaway for me from this task force is that we focused on this problem and we made progress. Like, like as a leader, where you direct your attention is basically where you direct your impact. And I think that's yeah. what we see here um, with, with this work group. Another work group that I think was really important is the primary care connections work group. And this one was really interesting because it focused on the, the issue that many people of color, many black folks in Detroit don't have a doctor. Many black folks in Detroit don't have insurance. And so without a doctor or without insurance, it's harder to have good health outcomes. It's harder to manage a, a chronic condition that you might have. It's harder to, or if you get COVID-19, it's harder to like know what to do and to be able to deal with that. And so we used the fact that we were encouraging people to go get tested for COVID-19, whether it was at a neighborhood-based testing site or the other places that you could go get tested. And while people were in that process, like waiting for their results or whatever, we then worked with health navigators to engage them and understand their current status, and then to connect them with doctors, connect them with health insurance, connect them with information and resources. So they could then establish a long-term relationship with the health professional, which again, would lead to better outcomes because it could better help you manage your diet, better help you manage any conditions that you may have. Um, but we didn't have that opportunity to make that connection um, but for this engagement around COVID-19. So we think that that navigator model, again, is, a, is really sets a, um, is a good example of how we can engage people who are looking for one particular set of services to connect them with a different set of services that can lead to a, a broader set of better outcomes. And so, you know, these are the, these are the sort of flavor of the recommendations that we're making that we think can really have an impact long-term and can go far beyond our response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Okay. Um, so, you know, when you look at access to care, I think access to care is extremely important, but we know there were some people who were turned away from emergency centers, even when they had uh, emergency rooms, when they had doctors. Just recently, I learned of somebody who was sent home to um, stay at home and who returned to the hospital and their oxygen levels were extremely low. Um, have you tracked disparities in, um, in treatment and care of uh, Black people compared to other populations? Or is that there's an assumption that if people have a doctor, all things will be equal? So the last part first, we we do not make the assum that assumption, um, because I don't I don't think that um, I, if anything our attitude is that we have to try to uh, shape the outcomes that we want, <laughs> and so one of the reasons one of one of the motivations or, or actions that we took really in the name of that Donna was last summer we made a declaration of racism as a public health crisis, and what that unfolded is it, it unlocked our ability in state government to be able to use more tools to deal with um, the public, the, the health disparities that have been present in non-white communities. And one of the things that that enabled us to pursue a path on is Michigan became one of the few states that actually made a requirement for medical professionals 
mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. that are currently practicing or as a required licensure to go through uh, training about implicit bias. Now this matters in the scenario that you described because we've seen in other elements of, of, of healthcare um, that black folks have gotten treated differently on a macro level um, than other people. Our administration mm-hmm. actually, before the pandemic, we launched an initiative called Healthy Moms, Healthy Babies in February of 2020. And the intention for that was to deal with the maternal mortality rate disparity between black women and white women, black women being three times more likely to die um, related to, with something related to childbirth uh, than, than white women. And part of that is grounded in this measured reality that doctors respond differently to black women who tell them they're experiencing pain, right? Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and then there's a ton of bias, prejudice, racist, terrible stuff that has led to that being a reality um, for black women. And I just, I mean, many, many, many black women have a story about this. And so, so we think that really by requiring this training as licensure to really change what it means to be a medical professional in the state of Michigan, we think on a system level can try to help address that. Because one of the things that we do know is even by like, just the acknowledgement of bias is one way to deal with this negative impact. So so we try to deal with that kind of on a system level, Donna. So we know that they're having those those um, those experiences for people and for, for, for one person is too many people. And that's how we're trying to address that. So, so going through the report, um, one of the things I know I saw no mention of the Michigan Department of Corrections or any work that may or may not be happening to stop the spread of COVID in prisons. We know that Black folks are disproportionately overrepresented in our prison populations. So what is happening there? And is that an area that the task force will focus on or is focusing on to decrease the spread of COVID-19 in prisons? Yeah, I appreciate that question. So both the task force and state government broadly um, have been very concerned about this. Like, look, our prisons and our jails are, frankly, have been the, the definition of um, the types of congregate settings where it's easy to spread COVID-19. People are in close proximity, um, et cetera. It's hard. One of the actions that we took very early in the pandemic, so let me let me connect, connect the dot for you. So I have been leading our administration's efforts to reform our criminal justice system for the better, because it is not a system that's been designed to set people up for success. And as part of that, I led a, a different task force on jail and pretrial incarceration reform with the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Bridget McCormack. And we made a set of AT recommendations to the Michigan legislature, how we could safely reduce jail emissions to um, reduce our jail populations, period, um, so that we can frankly have people in the community being able to contribute um, to their families, to their, to their neighborhoods, rather than being warehoused and incarcerated. As part of that, we gave guidance to judges who were making the choices ultimately about who goes to jail and who doesn't. Interesting, yeah. We gave guidance to them. We So we did sentencing guideline reform. But we also gave guidance about who could be released from jail safely. Now that guidance had not yet been implemented or codified into law um, when the COVID-19 crisis mm-hmm. struck. But because we had written the recommendations in a way that that could be acted upon, Actually, um, the Supreme Court, the Chief Justice, who was basically the boss of all the judges in Michigan, was able to, through action in her authority, issue specific guidance for how to reduce jail populations, limit the spread of COVID-19 in jails. And so we actually saw a whole lot of people go home 
from jail pretty early, which is important because jail people are in and out of jail. It's, a, it's an easy way to contract and spread COVID-19. And so we saw in our jail population being able to manage that a little better. Now, when it comes to our prison population, that's a little different. And so we work to surge everything from testing capacity as well as um, PPE and vaccination capacity now in our jails. One of the things we've been using our mobile vaccination infrastructure with as also our uh, Michigan National Guard vaccination capacity is to offer vaccines to people who are currently incarcerated in prison. And that's been that's been work we have uh, now offered uh, more than once uh, vaccination opportunities and booster opportunities to every person who is currently in the Michigan Department of Corrections. But more importantly to me, um, we have seen this as an opportunity to like, how can we find ways to just have less people in prison and therefore be less exposed? Mm-hmm. And so I think that's how this ultimately all gets connected. So while that's not explicitly mentioned in this report, that has been a priority for the state of Michigan. All right. So um, I do have one question about the move um, in language from pandemic to endemic understanding that in prior uh, health outbreaks in HIV, polio, and others, when we moved away from the pandemic or worldwide epidemic mindset to endemic, um, Black people continued to pay a higher price, and there was less money, less investment in protecting our health. How do you move to an endemic um, mindset, while at the same time ensuring that those people who are most vulnerable are having their needs met through aggressive prevention and uh, treatment? Yeah, that's a great question, Donna. And, and that's what speaks to, that's why I answered the question earlier with some of the more, I think, systemic recommendations that we're making. Um, this is about how we make different choices to improve health outcomes, not just improve pandemic response. And so for, for, from, from our perspective, um, the place we want to get to is where we, where we where there are no longer disparities in what's going to happen to you if you get sick, if you're Black, or if you live in this zip code, or if you live in this city. That's the place we want to get to. And so whether we are in the context of an emergency or a pandemic or not, we still have work to do to get to that place. And so these recommendations are, we think, you know, one of the many starting points that our administration has put forward to try to, um, move us in that direction but there are other things that we're doing as well you know um i know so donna you remember when we were over uh, at esoc community network for the launch of our poverty task force yeah. you know we know that um persistent poverty is a contributor to bad health outcomes mm-hmm. and so we have uh, pre-existing condition <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, all of this, right? And so, and so we have work to do. We know that there are infrastructure and access problems. One of the things the Primary Connections Group, you know, looked at, um, I don't I don't remember if this is in the study, but like one of the things that we looked at is the fact that like, why aren't there doctor's offices in Black neighborhoods, right? And so how can we as a state use our tools, Medicare, Medicaid reimbursement rates, for example, to create different incentives for there to actually be doctors in neighborhoods where people live? And or arming people with the technology to access telemedicine and, you know, all of those. And, you know, so, that's so you, the charge that, of that the Stoudemire the Wellness Hub. And I know Plug you it, Donna. Know, Plug it. For a minute I, 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 of time. I, I, put, I put the ball in the tee for you on that one. But Orlando, <laughs> you, got to the, you got to the piece that I wanted to get to next, which is something very near and dear to my heart. And it's the fact that um, we have an internet access disparity that contributes to a lack of information and a lack of access to resources um, for people to get better health outcomes. And especially as medicine is 
you know, in the process of transitioning the way that so many other services and industries are to a delivery mechanism that's based on internet access. We need to make sure that black folks have access to the internet. And, and access the everywhere in Detroit. And there's and that's not true today. And so frankly, look, I look, I, I set up the Michigan High Speed Internet Office to deal with this specifically. We have uh, a once in a lifetime opportunity to expand internet access right now with all these resources from the federal government. And I want Michigan to be the first state to connect all of our people to high speed, high quality, affordable internet access at home, which will improve health outcomes bar none. We've seen that. And so I, I think that we have to really deploy all these tools, Donna, so that we get to a place where, again, regardless of the context of a pandemic, epidemic, endemic, mm -hmm. or just day to day, that, that we are setting people up for success and better outcomes. All right. Well, listen, we um, are, we opened the Stoudemire Wellness Hub actually in honor of Marlo Stoudemire, who's the first person many of us knew who um, died from first COVID. First person I knew. Um, first person I knew. Yep. Yeah. First person many of us knew. And one of the things that we will have is telehealth rooms to help assist the community in accessing health, where we will be transporting people to our center, giving them access to health, telehealth, because it's not just a matter of high-speed internet. A lot of people don't have the capacity to use internet effectively, especially senior citizens. We are working to train senior citizens, but people like my mother, who will be 89 years old later this month, is, are just not going to get it. So as we begin to move more things to telehealth, I think that's important. It's going to be interesting to me to see how the state works with organizations like mine that are nested in the community to make sure that we are part of the solution, because it's not just doctor's offices, right? We need to build those bridges. There's a lack of trust. Do you see room for the, the, the task force or some other state entity to decide to work with community-based organizations like mine to push things more into a grassroots um, level? Yes, that, yes. We, one of the one of the big takeaways from this this work has been that you got to work with people who people trust, and so that is why when we set up the neighborhood based testing infrastructure, for example, working with community organizations, working with faith organizations to stand up those thirty plus centers that delivered you know twenty four thousand plus free tests across the state that were exclusively in communities of color that were deeply affected and hardest hit by the pandemic. Um, those neighborhood organization partnerships what made that work. I'll use another example of something that we did just very recently. Uh, two weeks ago, we announced a, a unique partnership between the State Health Department and Detroit Public Schools Community District for to actually mm -hmm. authorizing the district and the district school nurses. Again, I, you know, for in terms of people who are trusted in the neighborhood, people send a trusted nurse at their school to be able to directly administer vaccines. Uh, to children who have parental consent. What that means is, this is one, this is, a, this is a way for us to try to work to help make sure that kids can stay in school safely, um, that education professionals are protected, but also um, really building on these schools that have relationships with community organizations and they have relationships with folks in the neighborhoods to be able to have these conversations because people trust their, their school nurse. And we think that that can help increase the vaccination rate amongst children and amongst adults in the city of Detroit. And so I, I use that as, a, as another example, Donna, because we frankly need to be aggressive in terms of partnering with people, with organizations that have the relationships, that have the authority, that have the credibility to be able to move the ball forward. Because the truth is we all want the same thing. I want people to be alive, healthy, and thrive. That's what I want. Alive, and healthy, and thrive. I love that. <laughs> All right. Uh, thank you. There is never enough time. Uh, Lieutenant Governor Garland Gilchrist, thank you for joining us on Authentically Detroit. My pleasure, Orlando. Donna, good to see you. Y'all take care and be safe. Take thank care. You.